thinkers, welcome to this week's Thinking Podcast by Human. I'm your host, Jeffrey Wu, with my guest today and a, a friendly face that you might have seen before, Dr. Rihanna Stubbs. Good morning, Jeff. Hello, everyone. Yes, yeah, so it's her birthday today, so let's all uh, wish her happy birthday. Yeah, 21 again. <laughs> 21 forever, right? C- counting down from here. Yeah. Um, but and another big announcement is that when we talked for our first episode and our first podcast, we were flirting around the idea of what was in her future. And that future, we're finally able to announce that she is joining Human as a research lead. So really, I see Dr. Steps, Brianna, uh, really taking our science efforts, our research efforts to the next level with a new level of rigor and a new level of R&D. So really excited to tease into a little bit of that work here and also just discuss broadly um, I think some of the hot topics that we've seen in our community and just in the biohacking community at large, whether that's how does science play into uh, R&D in a company and how that is different from academia and how that's different in athletic performance to uh, some of just the broad, I would say, misconceptions or uh, nuances in low-carb, high-fat, ketogenic diets, fasting. So let's just uh, broadly kick it off from here. Yeah, well, um, I'm really excited to join. I've been here for like three weeks now. Everyone's made me feel really welcome. And it's really refreshing to go from like a super high performance community with the sport and obviously the academia in Oxford, everything, everyone's super tight, super driven. And to come here and work with you guys, it's um, the same sort of environment where everyone's really pulling in the same direction. Everyone's really focused on what they're doing. And um, especially given the recent rebrand, it's just a really exciting time to be coming and joining the team here. And I'm really excited to be, as you said, part of the next steps going forward. Yeah, absolutely. So a reminder there, we had a podcast talking about the rebrand and also the initial podcast, just as a reminder for background. I mean, we have a great discussion on Bree's, you know, full life story, if you will. But, you know, the quick highlight here is that, uh, you know, grew up as a very competitive rower, I think was the first, the youngest person period to row the English channel at the age of 13, was it? 12. 12. Uh, ended up, uh, you know, being a highly competitive world-class rower, uh, rowing for the Great Britain National Rowing Team, as well as winning uh, gold medal at the World Championships last summer in Rotterdam. I can't um, believe that's almost a year ago now. I was looking at some pictures of, <laughs> of how um, super sporty I looked about a year ago. I mean, I'm still super sporty now, but yeah. time flies when, when everything's super intense and you're yeah, having fun. Yeah, but I think that's a, perhaps even not even the most impressive part. I think also with that world-class athletic is also a world-class thinker and researcher where, uh, you know, did her undergrad and completed her PhD recently at Oxford University, uh, undergrad in, I guess, pre-med or, or medicine yeah. and a doctorate in uh, metabolic biochemistry, studying ketones, ketone metabolism, and this emerging space of how to potentially enhance human performance. So, uh, really relevant to us as we're building what we believe to be the canonical human enhancement company. I think our explicit goal is if you look at Nike as bringing athletics to the world, and I think I look at Apple or Dell Computing bringing computing to the world, human, HVMN, our explicit mission is to bring biohacking, this notion of enhanced humanity to the to the yeah. world. And I think like personally, it's a really interesting transition for me and um, going from this community where... <laughs> 
it's funny because academia it, on the outside you'd think that it's research for the sake of research but actually when you're a PI and you're trying to uh, kind of corral all of your different PhD students and master's students into a program you're responsible for getting funding for them right and so in order to get funding you have to produce good publications and so actually in the same way that a company has to sell product to kind of keep itself going you have to sell yourself as a researcher right. and a product and so um the similar pressures exist in academia as they do in industry. And I think that from the outside, I had kind of assumed that coming from an academic background that, you know, working in industry, it's sort of got less of a kind of favorable image. And actually, if you are doing it motivated by a goal that everyone's pulling towards, it's the same as doing research in an academic setting. You're kind of all, you're doing it for the sake of doing it. Right. And whatever happens alongside, whether that's publications or whether that's making good products that people want to use, right. that's the out, an outcome rather than the absolute end goal. If you yeah, see what no, I think that's an interesting point. Because I think if you look at broader industry, like if you look at computer science research, a lot of the cutting edge research is being published by like the Googles and the Facebooks of the world. Yeah. Where I think, I, I, I know what you think about it. So obviously, you know, like quote unquote academic research has just evolved Western civilization, just civilization in general, uh, is really molded like the, the way we live, yeah. right? But I think, do you think that just the funding sources for governments are now potentially drawing back on, yeah. on on research funding, on basic science funding. Yeah. That more and more forward-looking private entities that are funding research. How do you see that? See that yeah. that world evolving. So I think one of the things I when I was. Uh, after I came back from visiting you guys, I had talked to loads of my different professors and people that I'd worked people that I'd worked with in Oxford over the years, and a lot of people highlighted to me that more and more funding is having to come from industry because with the economic state, especially in the UK, especially given that the UK is leaving the EU and some of those that funding comes in from the EU, that actually more and more funding is coming from industry. And if you accept funding from industry, you you know there's that's very it's only a short hop from actually working inside industry. Right. And then whilst if you work in a big drug company, you don't have autonomy as a researcher, you have the much better access to funds and also help with management. And, right. you know, just having watched academics in Oxford work, it's so, so challenging what they do because they're trying to direct research, but also do all of the admin that, that isn't required to get the funding and also trying, you know, they're trying to wear like a million different hats. They're trying right. to, as whereas if you're a research scientist working for a big drugs company, your responsibility is to do the research. Right. And you, whilst you can't be like, oh, well, I've had a negative result, but I want to carry on further. If your boss decides they're going to pull it, they're going to pull it. Right. You lose that autonomy, but you should have at least the the resources that you need to complete your work. So I feel like within industry and, and commercially funded research has got the potential to be um, better resourced than some in some academic settings because the funding is so competitive and so hard to come by in, in academia. It's yeah. very challenging. I mean, I know one lady back in Oxford, probably one of the most talented sci young scientists I know. She's sort of in her 30s, she's got starting up a family and she's had a grant for sort of three to four years and then she didn't get that renewed. And she's like one of the most meticulous scientists I know. And it's just <gasps> galling to watch these people um, like struggle for their job security when they could go and have this really stable career and progression up if they worked in industry. Right. So, I mean, it's not an easy 
dischance uh, dis choice for especially women to stay in academia like it's very male dominated right. and takes a long time to get up to the top and a lot a lot of security and so i think um it's, it's an interesting one they're trying yeah, I mean... to they're trying to keep women in <laughs> science and technology and medicine and um i can see why they're struggling so I think one of the things that we're doing that's I think is interesting is trying to take the best of both worlds from industry as well as academia where right like traditional industry is 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 we're building we want a we want a positive hypothesis we want a positive effect yeah and like everything that's a null hypothesis yeah not is, published is, it's not useless. released yeah uh, and, and that's not great science because um, the null results you know inform. The right path moving forward yeah um and i think it's also like a naive to think that academia is purely you know academia as well right like again like the funding sources have direction have biases it's just human nature yeah and again i, had I think a people try to be fair but yeah. like there's some biases of like what is interesting at but the also time. as a researcher you want to get your um work published in the best journal possible so you really you know when you write you highlight the like strengths of your work right. and maybe either omit or um play down bits of your work that you're less taken right. with and you know i had a, another meeting with a different professor and he was like you know there's always a, an element of spin and salesmanship. Even in the cover letter that you write to the journal, you want to make your work sound important and novel. And so even as a scientist, you're selling yourself. It's just, <laughs> so I feel like um, at the end of the day, they're both kind of like equal. It's not It's not that industry is this super dirty thing right. that never finds a you know, negative result. Because um, in theory, like, yeah, it's, it's just, I, I think it's just like if you just were to characterize in a most stereotypical way, right? Yeah. Like that was what I, the critique would be. Yeah. And I think that in, in some ways, uh, the business model of or, or self-sustaining model of having R&D fund and produce good products that people want is a lot more self-sustainable, right? Because like grants are on like cycles of time, which the value created is not necessarily just based on a three-year three window. Like if you make a really great innovation, like penicillin, um, well, that's what if, off, what, yeah, off patent now. So yeah, so what if all that value that penicillin created accrued back to the scientists, R and D, more and more materials and more and more, you know, drugs and therapeutics and and and, and, and compounds, right? Yeah. I think it's just like how do we get the best of both worlds where you can maintain uh, integrity around searching for the truth while having a sustainable business yeah. model where we can accelerate. Uh, efforts yeah. uh, of finding I, that truth. I think in reality, in academia and in industry, there's never, you know, like, there's very, very, very few academic positions or companies where you can just think and do research just for the sake of it. Right. So um, recently, Jeff was visiting in over in Oxford and we were talking about there's a super elite college called All Souls College and they only take a two or three people every year, very few people, huh. super, super bright people, and they get a stipend, a salary, but with no, no, absolutely no strings attached whatsoever. So they're, in theory, just picking out the brightest minds and being like, think, do what you like. Well, what, do but they do anything? They don't have any responsibilities. Right, but they I, have I, no... I, I'm actually curious, like, do those scholars end up producing great work? I think um, they have very, like, notable people among their alumni. I couldn't tell you for, okay. for sure. Because I, I think some pressure is actually good for producing results, right? Like, yeah. I, I know if... I think I'm reasonably self-motivated and we, I think everyone probably listening is, you know, somewhat motivated to improve themselves, but it's like, Hey, no pressure. Here's some yeah. universal basic income to like survive. Uh, 
But they're hoping. Do you have that kicked motivation? I mean, I think if you choose the right people, yes, they'll be so. Yeah, I think if, if you pick the people that are bright enough, then they're going to be using the time to yeah. to develop their own kind of yeah. hypotheses and things like that. Because I think when you put, I put in like a few little um, app, sort of applications for my own funding, so for my PhD, and then also for like some postdoctoral work that I did. And you have to have deliverables. And when you're kind of planning out your deliverables, you want to be able to deliver your deliverables. Yeah. So you actually kind of set. You don't necessarily go out there with this big you lofty... You sandbag it a little bit. Yeah, you don't okay. go out there with this big lofty kind of aim or, or you know, it's because you want to firstly, you want to be able to deliver it or alternatively, in order to get the grant, you put out this big lofty aim that you know you're never going to be able to get and you right. hope that you can... Some games and shit. I yeah, guess, I mean, yeah. like, like life is, is some games and but shit. But I think the interesting point that's coming out of all of this is that there's gamesmanship going on inside academia. Right. And um, I guess... The thing that grates with me a little bit that is that if you took the same gamesmanship and put it inside industry, it's this like, oh, it's not serious. It's like a bit polluted. And it's like, well, actually kind of everyone's playing the same game, right. whether they work for a company or whether they're, uh, you know, postdoctoral researcher. Yeah. At and university. I think hopefully, you know, with the R&D and the work that we're doing together here, that the impact, the immediate impact to people like millions of people will be a lot quicker and a lot more yeah. directly impactful. That was I think something... that's the goal of like, I yeah. think. I mean, I, I imagine industry as a whole, but especially for us as a group, like we're here to improve people's performance, metabolic health. Yeah, um, I immediately. think one of the one of the interesting things, like that comes off what you're just saying, is that if you have an intervention that it has got really good, solid theoretical like basis to it. It's an interesting discussion as to whether you should immediately make that available. If it's so long as it's safe, immediately make it available and let people use it if you think if you really believe it's going to make a difference. Or do you, like you said, sandbag it for like 10 years while you go through lots of clinical trials and prove efficacy and this and that, work out all of the details. And so long as it does no harm, should these things be like immediately available on the point of safety and safety and discovery yeah, no, i think you know? that's actually really interesting because i think in some of our early conversations and thinking around the space that um my thinking is that regulation will change around novel compounds probably uh in, in, in the next few years around enhancement type products or enhancement type compounds that are research compounds look at the sense of like marijuana is becoming essentially more and yeah. more legal and it's like clearly um we had that interesting discussion well with yeah there's like low side the effect profiles but there's clearly psychoactive and physical effects um but you know it's very well like clearly labeled hey this is uh you know a scheduled drug uh you know don't you know have children take this this is not you know uh, a candy bar um but you know, there's sort of big warning label. Mm. We know it's not going to kill you. Uh, like use within the safe kind of. Use it within some reasonable sense and like uh, go go play with it. Um, so I think there's going to be perhaps more and more of these compounds that uh, enter society where, yeah. you know, there's a baseline level of like safety that's not going to, you know, kill people, kill yeah. themselves or kill, harm other people around them. Yeah. And there might be some positive effects that people really want to tap into. Well, I'm super excited to yeah. see um, like exogenous ketones becoming available because um, in, in animal models, there's like, and actually in some like limited human cases, there's some really interesting potential benefits to be had for Alzheimer's disease, um, yep. concussion, cancer, yeah. among like the top kind of things that, that I think that there'll be like a direct 
way that when these are available that could really really transform people's lives you know maybe parkinson's disease absolutely well. like, I, I think it's yeah it's very broad 100 i think there's been like a huge gap between like okay these things are safe but like yes they haven't gone through 10 years of phase one phase two phase three a billion dollars of capital behind to like pass you know clinical trials but there's like this pocket in between where it's like okay it's like not 100% bad for you. It's not 100% validated by FDA through a 10-year process, yeah. but it's like a lot of like interesting emerging data. And, it, and a lot of these compounds are caught in this limbo land. Yeah. I think if you look at like, you know, exogenous ketones is one interesting area, but also just like currently scheduled one drugs like MDMA as a PTSD therapeutic or ketamine as like antidepressant yeah. or silos, some of these psychedelics. Yeah psilocybin lsd as like a again as antidepressant like 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 they're probably like not i mean from a side effect profile they they are not gonna kill you on like in a safe range clearly there's like uh, recreational uses for it but there's also seeming to be a growing body of data so it's that hey like this could be actually helpful in a therapeutic yeah. or perhaps enhancement effect but like it's kind of this limbo land where it's like okay uh but because we have a, perhaps an outmoded way of thinking about compounds. We cannot use them for anything. Well, also kind of interestingly enough, this takes us back to what we were talking about earlier. So if you've got a compound and anyone can buy it and use it and the drugs company isn't going to make lots and lots of money out of researching MDMA, right. then <laughs> why are they going to fund, you know, because clinical trials cost that millions and millions of dollars yeah. to do properly. You know, you're going to run a small the type of study that I ran as part of my PhD is like absolutely small fry in comparison with like you have know, 1,000 patients, yeah, hundreds 100%. of patients. Yeah, you over know. like years so, of I time. So I mean, that, yeah. ne that really, that needs industry funding, right. really. But they're never going to put that money into it if they're not going to make any money out of it. Yeah, and I so in a way, research in that, in sort of foods or, you know, like these type of more like around the fringe kind of compounds, it's going to be potentially kind of slow. Yeah. And so, yeah, it'd be interesting to see how the new regulatory kind of structure emerges. But I think one thing that people should be really careful of is if they're going to use something that's kind of off label, off -label they really need to do their own homework. Right. Because at the moment, you know, going back to ketones, there are kind of a lot of products out there that haven't been like properly validated and tested in humans so for example there are a lot of ketone salts being sold and there is no published literature around the keto use of ketone salts in humans so i'd kind of advise people to look at what they're using and see how what the basis of at least human evidence is because i mean it all very well things working in animals yep. or things working in cells that's even more abstract right and then you know in that case maybe try it and see if it works for you but always with the caveat that what what is the back, uh, body of evidence supporting this use case yep. in humans yeah is there any evidence 100 percent. i think that's like a big part of what i i think is the special part about the biohacking community where i think we're decentralizing that information where each individual is learning more like i think it is incumbent that they take some self-responsibility to understand read the literature yeah and take risks or choose not to take risks that they think are sensible to their you know personal choices but it's really hard though because um you might read one science paper that says one thing and then you've got a, com com a competing research group that disproves right. group, group, group b disproves group a's results yeah. um and until things become sort of a little bit more advanced in the scientific research often there's no consensus yep. and then e equally and also maybe even more dangerously you get something that gets entrenched as a hypothesis and then is found to be not 
the case. So, I mean, the, a good example of this is the metabolic theory of cancer versus the genetic theory of cancer. And you kind of get people being like, oh, well, cancer is all genes and people being like, oh, no, cancer is all metabolism. And yep. obviously, in reality, there's like a bit of a meeting in the middle, probably. But um, yeah, we had a great I mean, conversation <laughs> with Thomas Seeker yeah, from no, Boston. Very so we, should, interesting. we should link to that so to hear that deep discussion. Yeah. yeah. So I think I think um, there's no the hot, scientific approach should be that you're always wrong. <laughs> and that you should always be trying to educate yourself and, and deepen your knowledge. And you can't um, just take one research paper as a snapshot of gospel. Right. You've got to read widely. And then there are these things called meta-analyses as well, which look at the results if there have been more than one, more than one or two, often, often like nine or ten studies published around a topic. And then you can look at the results of all of those studies um, through this website that's called the Cochrane uh, database and so that's a really good resource for people who want to look at meta-analyses for specific variables but then even when you're trying to interpret those results it can get super like deep into the weeds you know because if you're looking at fat intake in different studies what else was changed in those studies what are the confounding yep. variables and then also I was reading a study where they were looking at the mean results for each of the 10 trials and then they stopped looking at the mean results and they took they managed to get all of the raw data from these 10 trials and plotted that and got different results huh. so it's all about interpretation yeah it's all about um data analysis and you know you must, you must, you it's, it's difficult it's really it's really weedy. It's yeah. really weedy. And I am not an expert. And I feel like um, the more I read and, and find out, get deeper into the weeds, the more I kind of feel like not less like an expert. And so yeah, I think no, I mean, I think it's a huge thing of like us curating and, you know, presenting what we think is a best framework to think about, like a lot of things like fasting or nutrition. I mean, I think nutrition is notorious for having just dogmatic schools of thinking where you have people that are like zero carbs, that's the best thing ever or like balanced diet or like vegan yeah. or ketogenic diets. And I think that like saturated fat are good or not good. Yeah. Cholesterol, like don't eat too much. Eat, or eat you know, don't, don't eat meat. And then, Oh no, if women don't eat meat, they're going to get anemia. Right. You know, like, so I think um, everything that we do in our lives should be informed by context in our right. own life. So, right. you know, athletic training you should modulate that according to your how you feel and obviously if we were going to start training for uh, an Ironman tomorrow you and me we'd have to be on totally different training programs because we're starting from yeah. different points I even think, though the I end goals the, are the same I think a biohacking approach would be also like how you feel but we also have just continuous sensors on our systems though. yeah the so like actually data actually use data to inform that where I think before it used to be like okay if you want to collect your biometrics go to your doctor pay you know hundreds if not thousands of dollars all these crazy biometrics yeah. and now that's coming down in cost now you can actually quantify that performance in yeah some you can fashion, go and you can get right? a dexa scan you, you can, can get your glucose like fasted glucose get your ketones, ketones. Done. you can go and yeah everything's getting easier and easier you can measure your heart rate variability yeah, so i think yeah, exactly so i think that's like where i want to take the 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 the, the, the community and really the the culture around this for for yeah. like yes like we have the intuitive feel, but we can confirm that intuition with actual real data. Well, we have we have science data, and then we're going to take that into people and, and, and then so, confirm it with the data from the people. Right, and you personalize so, it for your own data, yeah. right? It's like, okay, if some cohort of psychology students from Harvard did this thing, does that really reflect me? I think there's like a very interesting uh, article that basically said that 
basically every single psychology paper that's been published is done on psychology students. Yeah. Right? Because like that's how you recruit patients. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Your, your subjects are who you can get people to well, come I, into the I, lab. I've done a few of those. They just send out emails and it's like, 10 pounds, come in and sit and look at a screen. Which is so really you know, funny because yeah. like an Oxford student body yeah. or a Stanford, I went to Stanford, a Stanford student body of psychology students or computer yeah. science students is like very much not different from, you know, a, a population in the Middle East or a population in uh, a, a low socioeconomic neighborhood yeah. in Detroit or something, right? Like it's actually really funny that like the, what, the notion of psychology is basically science and a lot of data on 20, 18 to 22 year old, fairly well off middle class, upper middle class. But this goes, this goes deep. This goes deeper than that, right? Because when you look at the, the pretty much the whole body of sports medicine is done on 20 to 30 year old men because women have menstrual cycle mm. and like from actually um, I'm trying to think if we ever we did do some of our studies with ketones on women, but actually you have to you have to have them on contraception because because of the monthly changes in like body temperature, you know, like things change in women. <laughs> so you don't want to recruit female athletes because it's difficult to standardize them. And, and then if, and then if you so, do, then you, 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 you ask them like, yeah. are you on? And so they'll have to be on hormonal contraception so that they don't have a cycle. And so. <laughs> You all of a sudden you've got all of the women out there that aren't on contraception who aren't being well. Shampoo. No one really has any data yeah, on non-birth control women. Well, athletes. I mean, I'm sure I'm sure it exists, okay. but like the huge bulk of the literature is done on men, young, fit men. Yeah. And I went to a really interesting seminar um, in a conference that was hosted by the British Physiological Society, and they talked about the very subtle differences between men and women's physiology. Right. But you know, that's just one. That's a really basic thing that's probably going to lead to quite different responses to like a many different variables so I mean, yeah you know, i mean like, like yeah clearly like as hormonal i mean just hormone like estrogen levels shift across a cycle yeah like different interventions stack with different levels of estrogen for example as one of these main hormones that that shift yeah yeah i mean that's just like a I, uh, yeah, I mean, one can understand from the science perspective. Okay, you're adding some crazy variable in there that's like really powerful. Uh, so that's gonna throw off all Just your data. from the like the point of view of the investigator, it's difficult enough to try and run these studies. Right. Uh, it's difficult logistically and yeah. very emotionally involving, and so you just want the data to be as clean as possible yeah. because it's difficult when you're very invested in running a study. Right. You can't expect that the people that you're getting in to do it are as invested as you are, and so it's not. Yeah, no, I mean, not. like when in my undergraduate master's project, I had one of my friends volunteer. You to come just and go do it, in, and he turned up a... drunk. And I had to send him away. Yeah. You know, there are people who are just like, oh, well, I'm here. And it's like, give me yeah, 50 bucks. And, yeah, it's yeah. like, you're not like, that, that wasn't included. You know, he was sent away. He wasn't included. Yeah. You know, I have some standards, <laughs> high standards as to, but I remember when I did, um, took part in some of the first studies looking at ketone esters. And I remember, you know, I was just kind of going about my day and they would, oh, later I'm going up to the hospital to do this study and wouldn't really even have given it a second thought. But as an investigator, you're like, oh, I really hope this person's like fasted diligently and not yeah. gone out the day before and done something that, you know, for my other half, he took part in one of our studies and again had to be excluded because he'd been racing two or three days before and wasn't properly recovered and like bonked on the test because he wasn't recovered. And so you get, all, you know, it's just... It's difficult trying to run science studies. And so yeah. in the ideal world, you'd have live-in people who were robots and you could just yeah, you have, standardize you everything clone, as much like as possible. You have like the white, the white mouse that are just genetic clones, yeah. right? 
So you yeah. like clones of humans yeah. that like you put in a box with the same like 2,500 calories and like control same their exercise of, yeah, yeah, yeah. and control their light dark cycle. So and... we're recruiting for clone humans. Yeah. Email us. If you want to be put in a box. Yeah. Um, <laughs> to, talking about athletics, I think that puts an interesting segue into. So we talked about science and research and industry and academia, but I think a third interesting arm, given your unique background, is how does science and R&D play a role in top-tier world-class athletics, yeah. right? Because obviously at that you know upper echelon, the differences between gold medal, you're the, you're the hero of your country, yeah. to sorry, you like our 20th place and no one even knows that you existed, is, you know, point... Very small. It's like a point... 1.5 percent difference yeah. um so any kind of edge in terms of performance recovery uh improving your mental state is huge so how does the latest science and research apply in the athletic world so i think the first thing that's kind of interesting is that it's quite difficult to do research on elite athletes because elite athletes are on like a training racing program and um even as far as doing um, physiology, so VO2 testing as part of the program with GB rowing, that was something, because in order to standardize it again, you'd have to taper off for a few days before and they didn't want to interrupt our training. So actually, and often athletes at that level don't want to be guinea pigs and prodded and poked and things you're like that. just adding new variables to your yeah, like, so you're, you're, you're you, like a machine, right? Like yeah. you're just like randomly off. So we would, um, the physiology team were very, and I think this is um, hopefully applicable to physiology teams and like teams throughout you know trying to stay on top of the latest research and then they would present stuff to us as the athletes and then we could try it if we wanted to or they would you know supervise us trying it but most of the time we wouldn't take collect all that much data other than performance data to support it so there are a few um supplements that are kind of recommended by the american um, college of sports medicine as as being backed by sufficient amount of evidence but obviously as you mentioned there are new little things and techniques and coming out all of the time um that aren't yet backed by evidence but also things that aren't backed by evidence but individual athletes do and they feel it makes them feel better so i mean I, I, I'm not super up to speed on all of this, but I know things like cold immersion and compre- I'm, I'm wearing compression leggings now, compression leggings for soreness. And the evidence there is pretty like, Eh-eh. but I know that make wearing compression leggings helps me feel better and more recovered. How much of that is a placebo? How much of that's an actual physical effect? It's kind of unclear. Right. But I think that one of the most important things as an elite athlete is that you think that you're doing everything that you can to maximize your performance. And if there is an inherent physiological advantage in there, that you're then poised to take it. So I think, you know, in a lot of studies that have been done, the placebo effect has been demonstrated to be significant. And there are interventions out there, um, nitrates, caffeine, that's a very like well robustly proven performance enhancing drug you know that we can yeah, all it's, use it's a drug it's like um, a proactive compound beta alanine which is an intracellular buffer bicarbonate which is an extracellular buffer i think those are the main ones and then obviously my own like sort of foray into optimizing your fuel in terms of like carbohydrate or ketone like fueling for for exercise as well so those things are all supported by like a relatively good body of evidence and then there's yeah. all these kind of like fringe things 
I mean, it's not even super, super clear within the sporting community what's the optimal strategy for protein feeding to optimize like muscle mass and gain. Right. So it's like, you know, it's gone in the last 10 years, we've gone from, oh, you have to eat every 10 minutes, you know, hyper, you know, top up to now it's like, oh, three times a day or before bed or after bed. And there's, there's or so many fasting windows yeah, now. Like, like there's so many different ways out there of doing it. And so it kind of comes back to what we said about using drugs um, you know, research chemicals and drugs. Look at the evidence, see what you think, try it out. What's your experience? Can you collect any data? And then yeah, and, the, and then go like from the and then go like from the engineering there. Approach, so, right? like collect the like get the sensors to actually collect app, the, the yeah. biometrics that you're trying to optimize for. But then when you're when at the end of the day, as an athlete, what you really care about is your performance when you're racing. Right. And when you're racing, you just want to be racing. Yeah often you know you're not going to want to be like finger pricking for glucose or lactate when you're racing so we did often do recovery lactates after we'd finished racing so you do your own race get a blood lactate and then go and do your recovery and try and get your blood lactate from whatever it was when you finished to below we are physiologists to recommend that we get below two millimoles but that was very, very individual. So my lactate would go super, super high. I'd like hardly be able to walk. My blood lactate would be maybe up to 20 millimoles. And I could, I think I tried everything under the sun and I was super motivated because they used to give you sweets when you got below two millimoles. And I was just like, I just want some chocolate because I'm a hungry lightweight. And I'd like run and then I'd get in a cold shower and then I'd go on the bike because apparently doing different types of exercise is meant to, yeah, meant to, no, never, never. I'd go back like, an hour and a half later and still be at like five millimoles. And in the end, sometimes they just give me sweets for sympathy because they were like, you're literally doing everything that you can to get right. your lactate down. And the girls in my crew, I think often to start with, when we started rowing together, they'd be like, no, you've got to keep going until you get to two millimoles. And in the end, they were just like, you've done everything that we've done. We're at one, you're at five. Let's just go and like get off your feet and rest because there's just right. not much else you can do. So right. I think that's just an interesting case study of how different individuals are. And so like when you're like cycling or running, you're just going at like what? Like yeah, just 20% like, like yeah. just jogging. I mean like by this point, I'd be normally like pretty exhausted. So right. it'd be, we would walk, we would walk and debrief from the race. And I think um, a debrief straight after you've raced is always a really important way of like analyzing your performance and like moving on for the next time. Um, And then often the other girls would be kind of like low enough. So we would either like go and sit on a bike and just sort of spin out. We'd have our carbohydrate protein recovery drinks with us and trying to get in within a 20 minute window, like some nutrients to get the body kind of like refueling a little bit walking a little bit of cycling and then when we i had access to it there i would go swimming in the swimming in the lake just to get cold okay. like you would um, a good a good thing to do to recover quickly is to bring your core body temperature temperature down as quickly right. as you can so um the physiologist would sometimes have ice jackets for us yeah, so they there's like been... a technology at, out of stanford for people were doing like these ice cooling mitts that yeah if cold, you that lower your cold core. on your wrists cool jackets and we had these yeah. super cool towels that if you soak them in water and then sort of snap them the towel went cold cold. yeah yeah. Yeah, and so we'd like do those and so it's just anything to bring the body back into homeostasis as quickly as possible but even with like best practice of that my body wasn't yeah just my metabolism wasn't wasn't that way so you know i think um you've got to use your own like data as much as you can because one rule doesn't fit everyone absolutely so can you give us a sneak peek of some of the, like, the key initiatives that you're working on and what 
our audience and what our community members can can look forward to so i think one thing that we're working on to sort of start off with is kind of getting good sharing of science content within the team here at human so we've got myself and we've got um, an md phd working remotely and also a clinician working remotely as well and so the three of us have taken on a responsibility to like every couple of weeks appraise some of the literature that's coming out in our field like staying staying subscribed to like the latest alerts of what's being published and um, sharing a summary of that with the team and then we're hoping to share that out with um, the weekly emails and also on the social media pages as well so I mean as I said one research paper doesn't like prove or disprove like any particular theory but we're kind of hoping to um, disseminate research findings a little bit among the like biohacker community and and share studies that we find interesting so that's something that I'm really excited to see kind of rolling out and hopefully have some good conversations within the team and get some good um, if anyone else out there sees like a study that um, is kind of counter to anything we share we're like really interested to hear and sort of build a build up a good um, rigorous discussion in among in among the human like fasting and ketone and nootropics community um, so that's one thing that I'm excited to see happen over the next few weeks. Um, also really excited to start working to update the biohacker guide. So um, as you've, I'm sure that your listeners have seen, there's a beautiful, beautiful new human website. And so we're going to work at really hard to bring the biohacker guide up to that kind of level. And we want to make it um, accessible to people that have never really uh, heard much about biohacking yeah. before. It's not going to be, it's not going to be, um, a super super deep dive but we want to kind of arm people with the tools that they need to kind of make a uh, judgment Inform about decision how to a, like best yeah. optimize or certain outcomes exactly yeah. and then we also want to kind of create a bit of discussion around that as well you know yeah. we we want to listen to what people have to say and and offer people what, what they want 100 percent. yeah so um just sort of, yeah interested to kind of be part of scientifying human even more <laughs> as it were yeah and i think obviously uh in, in the in the in the in the office here a lot of other exciting projects and products are working on so hopefully we'll be able to update you as we have details to share there um last question um what are the biggest differences between you know you know coming as a tourist to america to now you know you know being properly uh, a San Francisco resident, at least as much as someone can be within, uh, you know, in a, in a month. So you have lots and lots of uh, Japanese people in the park doing their like kind of like Zen morning exercises, and that's like culturally something that I've like never ever seen before. <laughs> is that Japanese or is it like uh, Tai Chi Chinese uh, folks? I just can't. I don't know. They often all meet up in groups of sort of like ten, and it looks like an exercise class that they're doing in the morning. But it's only only Asian people that are doing it. It's like like not, older not older Asian people. They're it's probably just... it's I mean it's, it's in San Francisco. Is it in Chinatown? I mean, if that, if no, that's... it's out in the park. Golden Gate. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> okay. I mean, I, I would, I, I would think that it would be probably like your Tai Chi circles. I for... think it's great to see people out there like moving their bodies <laughs> and being active. And um, I think it seems like there's just a, quite an active community here. I went out yeah. cycling, and there's tons and tons of people out on their bikes, and tons of people running. And so California seems like quite a, a wellness-centered part of of the U.S. It's. I mean, I think especially San Francisco, but I think. I mean, you look at the numbers statistically for America as a whole, and it's like it paints a very different picture for yeah. people, which is like another a, discussion topic. But just like really the bifurcation of people like going from fairly healthy to even healthier to people that 
are obese or overweight have pre-diabetes or diabetes but i think what those tai chi people highlight for me is that you don't have to be out like running um, mile reps around a track or like cycling for 50 miles to be doing little things that you can to like make yourself more well and more healthy like whether that's a little bit of physical movement (laughs) or kind of like spiritually kind of also getting zen for the day as well so i think um i think i'll learn a little bit of a lesson from them and i hope that i'm like that when i'm old and dodgy and can't run around anymore you know <laughs> i think it's a good goal for all of us absolutely cool um we'll leave it at that uh thanks for jumping on yeah well, uh, i'm really looking forward I know, to more conversations i know brie has a lot of work as a research lead so we'll let her get back to it so uh in the meantime if you have any questions for brianna please send us a note uh you can also just find her on her personal twitter handle or social media handles at brianna stubbs uh she's pretty easy to find and has built quite a following with uh, her all her background as a as a researcher and as an athlete. Uh, but if you want to see more about our content and more about our story, please follow us on YouTube, Apple iTunes, and Google Play. Thanks so much. See you next time. Peace.